we're working hand in glove with physicians and physician organizations and training organizations to get consumers to begin asking the right questions and making the right demands of farmers out on the landscape. Hey, everybody. Thanks so very much for hanging out with us again this week on TLC Presents Conversations. I got to tell you, we've got a baller with us today. We've got a big name. We've got somebody in here that's going to move and shake a little bit today. And I'm excited about this conversation. Please, everybody, give it up for the CEO of the Rodell Institute, Jeff Moyer. Jeff, welcome. Thank you, Todd. What a great uh, pleasure to be with you and your listeners, your followers. Uh, excited to talk about the work of Rodell Institute and how it impacts people on the planet. Thank you. I, I thank you for being here. I am too. I'm I am really excited about this. I had the opportunity to uh, cruise over to your facility over on the on the coast here in California and check it out, which I enjoyed. Um, I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. I got a boatload of questions for you, but first, just to give people a little background, you know, you're not a part-time employee there at Rodale. You are on your what 44th year. I mean, you are certainly you have. I mean, where where do you go from here after 44? Yeah, well, actually, it's forty six, but not that forty six. Not, not that we're counting. Yeah, uh, it's it's you know, it seems like forty six weeks. It really went by rather rather quickly. It's been an exciting journey for me. Of course, it's an exciting journey for the organic community and the organic industry, and um, and it's it's been a lot of fun for Rodale Institute as well. So I'm excited it. about it. Yeah, well, let's let, let's get into it because I do. I got a ton of questions, and I want you know. And, and the first one I think we need to get out, and I want to talk about. It, so give us the history of Rodale Institute. Let people know because you know they hear this, they hear that. But I, if I was if I was a betting man, I would say a lot of people don't know exactly. How, you know, to your point, you've been there 46 years. Rodale is not a startup. They've been around. They have been promoting and talking about organic agriculture and making a change this planet for a long time. So share with us the history, if you would. Yeah, we, we've been around as a, uh, as a nonprofit for 75 years, but really the, the Rodale story started a little bit before that. Um, our founder, J.I. Rodale, was a businessman in New York City, uh, grew up in uh, the slums of Brooklyn, and uh, was actually a... Uh, person of Polish descent. His uh, parents immigrated from, from, from Poland. Um, and he was not wealthy. He was, he was poor. I guess like I said, lived in the slums. And uh, his name wasn't even Rodale. It was Cohen. But when he started his uh, business ventures, him and his brother, they started making electrical switchgears. Doing business with a Jewish last name was a challenge, even in yeah. the United States. You think about the late 30s leading up to World War II and what was happening in Europe. Uh, so just a little insight into J.I. Rodale, whom I never met him. I knew his wife very well. But um, J.I. basically said, if, if your name is a problem doing business, change your name. You know, that, you know, he was very uh, insightful and impactful. And so mm -hmm. that kind of thought process followed him all through his life. He was a very eclectic person. Uh, but when he started to make some money, he said, you know, wealthy people do two things. Uh, they buy expensive artwork and they hang it on the wall, which he did. And he's got a lot of his artwork is still in uh, some museums in uh, Philadelphia, Allentown, Eastern Pennsylvania area. Mm -hmm. And they buy farms. And so he bought a farm. Uh, he bought a farm for two reasons. One, it was a great uh, investment for him. Uh, he had the money to do it. 
And the other reason was, he said, part of the problem with Jewish people in Europe, uh, knowing what was going on uh, in, in the European sure. uh, environment during World War II, he said part of the problem is they're not farmers. Uh, they don't know how to farm. And so they are part of the fed society. Right. Uh, and that's fine as long as people choose to feed you. But when the food's not available or you can't have access to it, uh, we saw what happened. So his yeah. idea was to raise his own food. Uh, it was almost like the original Green Acres pro TV program. You know, he bought a farm, went out there for the summer. And his idea was he was going to raise food, jar it, can it, freeze it, do whatever he's going to do to it, haul it back to his apartment in Manhattan, stash it there, and he would never starve. He would always have food. He was also concerned about his uh, own personal health. His father died young. Right. His uncles all died young. And so he was, you know, the original sort of health nut, if you will, you know, thinking about how the food that you eat impacts your health and how that food was produced could also impact your health. So being a businessman and buying a farm knew nothing about agriculture. What do you do? You hire in or bring in experts to tell you what to do. And of course you here in Pennsylvania, you would bring in Penn state university from our land grant university and any other state you'd go to your land grant university and get the extension sure. office to come out and say, what do I do? I never had a flower pot. Now I have a farm. What do I do? And they talked about input agriculture, and it all made perfect sense to him. He right. was a bus businessman. He had a factory. Um, inputs in, product out, makes sense. Until they started talking about what those inputs were. Poisons to manage weeds, poisons to manage diseases, and poisons to manage insects. Oh, and then we'll use salt to grow crops, salt-based fertilizer. And he said, wait a minute. Okay, you're talking about these inputs. They're all poisons. Right. How do you take poison and salt, put that in the soil and produce healthy food? What magic takes place in the soil? What sort of alchemy takes place there that would facilitate that happening? And the answer was, it doesn't. That's not the point. He goes, no, that is the point. How do right. I, I, I want to eat this food? I want healthy food. And at no point in the conversation did they talk about the soil. And so he sort of... Uh, being an eclectic person and having a multiple interests uh, launched into this sort of self-discovery mode where he said, I want to, people grew food before they had all these chemicals. How did they do it? What did they do? What makes people healthy? And so he started doing his own investigation uh, and came up with the idea and wrote some words on a blackboard in 1942. He said, healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. And so what he was really telling us as farmers is that our job is not to produce food. It is to produce healthy people. So then he said, and it makes perfect sense to me, and I hopefully it does to your listeners as well. Any tool that, that you use in agriculture that does not make people healthy should not be used. So there is no amount of Roundup that you could possibly use that would make people healthy. I mean, if, if spring Roundup made people healthy, I mean, we'd say put more on and we'd all get healthier. And that's just not the truth. And so he would have said, now Roundup wasn't, or glyphosate wasn't around then, but he would have said, we don't use that, that product. Uh, any tools that do not negatively impact human health. And he was not at the time thinking too much about planetary health, because if you think about, you know, 1930s, 1940s, early 1940s, uh, the ideas around climate change were not really part of the conversation no. like they are today. And, and right. the Rodale Institute has uh, sort of... Uh, expanded our missions to say healthy soil, healthy food, healthy people, and a healthy planet, uh, because we really believe that 
agriculture has a role to play in either degrading the uh, environment and the, the climate that we live in or improving it. And that all depends on how we, how we do it. How we do uh, it. So, so, yeah. So he was looking at these, these tools and saying, this doesn't make sense to me. Why don't we find tools that make people healthy? And he, he came to the conclusion that it was all about soil health. And so the Institute has focused its energy over the last 75 years on expanding the conversation around healthy soil. In fact, in the beginning, uh, nobody would even listen to that conversation uh, as far uh, as far back as, or as recently as the 80s, when I was certainly working here. It was almost impossible to have a conversation around soil health, because if you did that, you were sort of admitting that the soil has a dynamic state of being, which could be attributed to the word health, and that means it's living. Sure. And if it's living, then you can have an impact on that, that state of being. Right. That's kind of hard for some people to swallow. It's because you know, you're not going to dump poison onto something that's living and, and have a clean conscious conscience. So, uh, you know, everybody just wanted to talk about soil quality. As we can talk about soil quality and soil quality is an in interesting conversation, but soil quality cannot really be changed very much because it's sort of the, the, the base product that you started with. Right. Uh, there is nothing I can do in Pennsylvania that is going to make my soil as high quality as Iowa or Indiana or Illinois. I mean, they're just blessed with high quality soil. Now I can have my lower quality soil be in a high state uh, of health and I can produce the same tonnage or volume of product that mm -hmm. they can, and they can have high quality soils that are unhealthy. Right. So uh, they're, they're two sort of separate uh, conversations to have. And uh, over the last few years, we've really sort of shifted that conversation in the history of, of uh, soils to address that, that word soil health. And there isn't a farmer on the planet today that hasn't at least entertained the conversation or listened to uh, somebody talk about soil health. So we've made great progress just in getting people to, to think about that. But, you know, Rodale started officially back in 1947 because J.I. Rodale wanted to give resource, financial resources to the land grant university and said, hey, let's do some work on organic agriculture. And he sort of put that word organic in front of agriculture. Mm -hmm. uh, and so let's do work on organic agriculture. And they pretty much said, nah, I don't think we want to do that. We're really focused on a different production model. Right. And that doesn't make sense to us. And he said, well, if they won't take my money, then I'll start my own nonprofit. And he started us. And we've been around, like I said, since 1947. Unbelievable. Work, working on these uh, issues. That's yeah, exciting. Love it. Well, you know, you, you bring up a really good point about when you talk about chemicals out there. And I, I find it interesting that the word, you know, possibly harmful is associated with some of the chemicals we put on our food. We can't even, you know, it's like, it, 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 I, I say this all the time. It, it's, it's kind of like you're almost pregnant. You either are or you aren't, right? <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, it's like, it, Absolutely. It, you know, somebody needs to decide that it is either good or it's bad. And don't get this gray area that allows us to be the test dummies out there um, for some of, this, some of these chemicals. We're seeing the negative results now. So yeah. people like Rodale, yourself, and others that are out there banging this drum about trying to make positive change, it's why this platform exists is to keep this conversation going. We have to. This episode of Todd Versations is brought to you by Alexander Family Farm, bringing you the finest certified, regenerative, organic milk, eggs, and dairy products from our family farm to your family's table. We are committed to providing nutrient-dense A2 milk. To learn more about us, our products, and where to shop, 
go to alexanderfamilyfarm.com. Now we we work we have a uh, we started about uh, two and a half years ago thirty months ago something like that started a consulting arm for the institute and maybe we'll talk about that a little yeah. bit later on but one of the farmers that we are consulting with right now um, has a trucking company and he does truck agricultural chemicals as part of his business right and he said if I have a chemical spill if some leaks out of my truck or out of a container, I have to call DEP and we have to put containment around it and we have to clean up the soil. We have to do all these. There's a myriad of steps. But if I yeah. take that same product and spray it on the land, it's perfectly fine. Right. Uh, and just, that's, that's what opened his eyes to organic agriculture. He said, this makes no sense to me. How can it be a problem in one spot? And yet it's a solution to problems in another spot. Well, and that's really what, what GI was saying is our, our, our goal isn't to kill weeds. If, if our goal as farmers is to kill weeds, glyphosate works. Right. Dicam- dicamba works. Atrazine works. They work to kill weeds. Yeah. Do, they work to, do they work to make people healthy? No, they do not. No. Nope, yeah. It, again, it's, it's, it's that possible. It might be sort of, well, we don't know. Yeah, it's probably hard. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe it is. Try it for 20 years and get back to me. That's what I find to be really repulsive in some of the systems that we have is that we mm-hmm. actually – it's as if we don't care. And we don't care in a lot of ways because of capitalism. We try to look at it from that perspective of being larger, bigger, faster, stronger. And I'm telling you, when it comes to our food, it's, it is really, really sad that we put that kind of energy into it, as opposed to what I call looking at the positive cost of food, which is better understanding the right things to do that offset healthcare, that offset all kinds, climate change, all these different things that our food can do to help us. So I appreciate your perspective of bringing that up. I truly do. So the purpose of the Institute really is research. It's understanding. I mean, you guys are actively farming and have been actively farming for a long period. I mean, I just was over in Camarillo. I mean, you're actively farming. Um, you know, so just for kind of round out our thoughts about, you know, the history of Rodale, but give me a little bit, just, you know, a quick snapshot of really the true purpose of the Institute. Yeah, well, we are a 501c3 nonprofit and we exist for the purpose of research and education around the world, words, organic and regenerative organic agriculture. So we are a science-based organization. We know uh, that agriculture moves on the back of science uh, and rightly so. Right. And in order to make the positive change or have the impact that we want to have and grow this industry, we have to have some science behind this conversation. Absolutely. There there are many, many, many organizations that have a great story, uh, but they don't have any science to back it up. Science is expensive. It's hard to do. It's time consuming. Uh, but we really believe that it is the backbone uh, of the institution and the backbone of the great change and impact that we're having and that we will continue to have. But then yeah. science without a uh, communications and education component is kind of worthless. Uh, you can work at, at a university in any university in the, in the, on the country or on the planet. You can do your research and your science. You can get it published. You can put it on the shelf. You can teach a class and you can make a career. Absolutely. That's not true at Rodale Institute. Our science has to be a catalyst for change. So it's really an action-oriented, science-based activity that is geared to two things. One is we're trying to shift and change the direction of other science-based organizations. So we do enough research. uh, Maybe we'll talk a little bit later about uh, the roller crimper and the way we manage cover crops. Part of the reason we did that and and we were successful is because every land-grant university in the country now has a roller crimper and they're doing work with it. So we took our, you know, I literally started with a $6,500 
research grant. And now there are millions and millions of dollars been spent on research around that tool, not all by Rodale Institute, but by other right. organizations. So we leverage and manage and, and, and magnify that uh, the impact of those dollars. So we're trying to magnify the impact of what we're doing. And then the other thing we're trying to do is use that science to backstop the story that we're talking about in terms of human health and planetary health, because right. we also want to drive and change the medical industry. So we're working hand in glove with physicians and physician organizations and training organizations to get consumers to begin asking the right questions and making the right demands of farmers out on the landscape. Well, you got to vote with your dollars, right? This is the only opportunity we can step up and, you know, and, yep. and, we have, and I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I, I say it all the time, you know, vote with your dollars, you know, put that, drive that positive cost into food. We need to be keeping this conversation elevated because quite frankly, in a lot of ways we're getting duped and we're getting duped at the cost of our own lives and our healthcare and everything else. And it's such an important message to keep banging. I want to dive in a little bit into the research because I think some of this is just super, super cool. One of which for sure um, is your, your farming system trial that has been literally going since, correct me if I'm wrong, 1981. Yes, so can you dive correct. in a little bit? I'd like to, because I, I want to break in a couple of these different research things, because I agree with you. Science is so important and that, you know, and I think if anything, we've, if we've learned anything over the last two years in this, in this country is that science is, uh, is how we should base a lot of our decisions. But, you know, what does the science tell us? Right. Um, and, and, and I think some of it, we've, we've stopped doing that in some ways. And I'm hoping that this, that the pandemic that we've been all going through and living through, I hope people open their eyes up to, uh, the importance of science in our lives every day. So, um, and I just wanted to come back to that because I felt that what you said was super important, but I, I want to get into your research and why you're doing it and the science behind what you're doing, because I think you've got a couple of great programs out there that are worth, you know, shouting from the mountain. And again, your farming system trials are what I'd like to start with. So if you can tell us how, why, and what's going on with that since 1981. Yeah, sure. It's a, it's the longest running side-by-side -side comparison of organic and conventional grain production in the in the country and I've been quite possibly in the world. Uh, the reason we started that experiment was in 1980, the USDA did a uh, wrote a wrote a paper and they had done a sort of a survey and an analysis of what was going on around the country in regards to organic thinking back 1980 a long time ago. Uh, and they were saying basically the question was, okay, if what Rodale Institute is saying is true, why aren't more farmers farming organically? Obviously, there's reasons for that, or there's barriers to adoption of these new sure. methods. What are those reasons? What are those barriers? And under uh, Garth Yunberg, uh, the USDA came up with this study, and they did a survey of farmers. And they came up with a bunch of different things, uh, one of which was they said uh, farmers don't believe there's going to be enough nitrogen in the system because you can get nitrogen, you can buy it in a bag. You can get it from a legume or you can get it from a cow's butt, uh, but there's not enough animals out there. There's not enough uh, technology around legumes. We have to buy nitrogen. It's going to be in short supply, so we can't be organic uh, right. because of that. And so uh, Bob Rodale at the same time was busy trying to encourage the USDA to take on ownership of this word organic. And uh, they said, well, you know, you have a great story, Bob. Uh, he'd go to Washington, knock on doors. They go, yeah, it's really, you get a great business. You got a great, you know, reputation. You guys are doing some amazing things, storytelling, but show us the science. Show me your, show me your hardcore science. Yeah. Because, because the other side, 
you know, the uh, Bayer Chemical, the Syngentas, you know, the Dow Chemical, they've got their story and they've got their science. Show me your science. And so he came back to us here at the Institute and said, we need to do some side-by-side comparisons and really showcase what can we do? What can't we do? What, it, what, it, what is the truth in this story? And so we started the farming systems trial and it was a grain production study. And the reason we chose right. grain uh, specifically uh, was based on corn and soybeans for the most part. But it's because if we could impact the way corn and soybeans are produced in the world, you're impacting a lot of acres. Part of our goal uh, in our mission statement, it, it, it talks about the need to transition farms and farmers to organic. We are interested in talking to every farmer in the world, every farmer on the planet, every acre on the planet, one by one. We want to transition them to organic production. And so uh, we need to have uh, an experiment that targets a crop that is grown everywhere. I mean, corn is grown just about in, in uh, every uh, state in the in the na- in the nation and around the world. Every province, every you know, whatever, has mm-hmm. grows corn or soybeans in one way, shape, or form. And so, if we can impact that, we can impact a lot of acres. And so, that's what we started with. Uh, the mm-hmm. project is still ongoing. It's outlived several scientists that have worked on it. Uh, we have probably had more. Uh, PhDs come out of that program from around the, the globe than any project on the planet. Uh, I think at least 50 scientists wow. have gotten their PhDs on the work that they've done there. Not all Rodale employees from other land-grant universities sure. superimpose their work on top of us, but it's, it's a great living laboratory here that anybody can come to visit. We're, we're open to the public in our, far, our, our research center here in Pennsylvania. I mean, you mentioned we have one in California. That's our youngest uh, operation and activity is there in California, but we're also in Georgia and Iowa. We're opening a research station in Italy and we're just on the phone or on Zoom with them uh, wow. in Italy earlier today. So yeah, I think that project is, is, is exciting. It continues to generate uh, exciting data and information it was originally started as a uh, agronomy study, looking at the impacts of changing production models on the agronomy of the of the crop, but then quickly morphed into a soils project, and it's really been a soils-based experiment ever since. As we look at the continual changes and and improvement uh, in the in the health of the soil as we superimpose different management activities right. on top of it. Unbelievable. I mean, and to think that it's been running that long. So the data you must have and the, and the stuff that's come up, I mean, it's it's got to be amazing. Now, are you sharing that data? I mean, are you publishing stuff as every year or along those lines or at least communicating your findings? Yeah, we well, just like any other scientific organization, we publish our research in peer reviewed journals so that we yeah. can have that information out there. We publish most of it in partnership with with other institutions or other scientists. But then we also publish uh, sort of uh, general public information, the kinds of stories that or the kind of information that people want to hear about and see about. Uh, for, for example, we were able to document that we can produce the exact same amount of crop organically using 45% less energy wow. than, we do, than we do in conventional systems. Not 4 or 5%, but 45%. That's huge. And so, yes, we can document that scientifically. But when you just have some facts like that, that you can hand out to the general public, it's like, yeah, why aren't we doing more of this? Right. Because we're saving energy at the same time. We're still producing food because we know we have to produce food uh, and commodities for the food industry. But we also 
want to save energy while we're doing it. Or we can sure. say we use less water, uh, particularly important in our in with our Western our states in our in our Western states with our, our friends and farmers out there. Where we know water is becoming more and more precious and more and more valuable. How do we make use of every drop of rain or every drop of irrigation that we can get? Absolutely. Well, so so with that being said, you know, talking about doing let's talk about the vegetable system trial and then let's let's talk about that because i think that's really as important because you are looking at food you know alternative other than the grains and stuff you're looking at food source so can you share a little bit about that yeah if uh if you think about our our farming systems trial that started as a uh, the original name for that experiment wasn't the farming systems trial it was the conversion experiment because we took land that was being farmed conventionally in fact it was in continuous corn for 25 years we didn't own it we rent it we own it now but we rented it from a neighbor and we said okay what we want to do is we want we want to rent that land from you we want to take this land that had been in corn and they sprayed everything but the kitchen sink on it and as the farmer said to me if we could have ground up the kitchen sink and sprayed that and it would have done some good we'd have done that too uh everything that uh, we were told to put on there we put it on yeah, corn's a heavily sprayed crop, no doubt. It is. And so he said, we want to take, what we said is we want to take that land, transition two-thirds of it to organic, one-third we kept as conventional, it's still conventional today, still gets all those chemicals put on it, still uses GMO seed and all of those inputs, but we transitioned to two-thirds of it to organic, one using an right. animal-based system, one using a legume-based system. But what we were trying to do was man- look at and uh, look at the soil under those different management strategies and see what kind of improvements we could make in increasing the, or improving the health of that soil. Right. And 45 years later, we're still improving the health of that soil as we're going along. What we did with the vegetable systems trial was just a little bit different. We took land that had been in a high state of organic management for Mm -hmm. 50, 50 years. And then we superimposed on top of that, some conventional treatments in vegetable production. And what we are doing is we're mapping or tracking the degradation of the soil against the degradation of the health and nutrition of the crops that we're producing. And of course, what we found out, and that project's only been running for six years, but what you find out is, of course, it's a lot easier or quicker to destroy soil health than it is to to build it up. And that makes perfect sense. I can, I can, it might take a year or two to build a house but you can knock it down in an afternoon with the right equipment. So uh, we know that we can destroy things faster than we can improve them. Um, and so that, that project is having much quicker scientific returns in terms of information as we track that degradation of the soil. And we're looking at three specific types of vegetable crops. We are looking at a fruit crop. So something like a uh, pepper or a, or a squash or a tomato, where you're actually picking the fruit off the plant and eating it. We're looking at a root crop, like a potato or a carrot, where you're actually eating something that's stuck in the ground. Uh, mostly we're using potatoes this the last few years. And then we're also looking at a leafy green, where you would eat or consume the leaf of the plant. Because right. we know crops or different plants will store um, contaminants and nutrients in different parts of the plant. So we want to look at both the fruit, the, fr- the root, and the, the leaf part of the plant as we look at that transition of nutrients from the soil into the, the, the food products that we eat. And of course, dealing with vegetable crops, it's a lot easier for us to talk to consumers because if sure. we show consumers a, a field of, 
of sort of livestock corn, uh, people go, yeah, nobody eats that. You know, I don't eat corn. Uh, they might eat sweet corn, but they're not going to eat that field corn. They don't realize that if they're eating a meat product, it came from that corn. Exactly. Uh, but if you, but if you're eating a tomato or a potato or a leaf of lettuce, people understand you just pop it in your mouth and eat it. And so it's a direct from the soil to you kind of story to tell. Now, the newest one you guys are doing, which is, you know, the, the, the hot button that's out there today in the world is hemp, um, which I did see some of your hemp trials that you have going on in California. It's kind of interesting. Um, can you touch on that real quick, just a little bit? Because I mean, that's one of the hottest subjects out there today is, is hemp based products. It is. We've been growing hemp for about uh, six or seven years now uh, at the Institute on various locations that we have. We have a, a hemp research plot at Pocono Organics, one of our partners here in Pennsylvania. Um, that's where most of our hemp is work is being done. You, you're right. We're doing some in California and we're doing some at our world headquarters here. Well, hey, we're, I mean, but, I saw in California. I'm assuming it was hemp. If it wasn't, yeah. hemp, you have a whole other business model yet. <laughs> no, I, no I, I, I haven't been there myself to see that hemp growing, but I, I'm it's hemp. sure it's hemp. Uh, yeah, you're going to get you're going to get me in trouble here. Uh, Todd. So anyway, no, OK, uh, we're looking at hemp a little bit different than everybody else. We're looking at hemp's ability to be managed in a crop rotation to improve the health of the soil. Right. So we're not looking, I mean, we, we may, we are growing some CBD, CBD hemp in right. uh, Pennsylvania, but we're not really looking at it from that aspect. We're not looking at the industrial hemp from what we can do with the hemp. There's many people looking at that and sure. we support, we support all that research, but we're saying if we're going to grow hemp in this country, and if we're going to grow it in an organic system, how do we manage that so that we can use the potential of that plant to improve the health of the soil versus destroy it? We, we can talk about almost any crop. Uh, and if you manage it poorly, even in an organic system, you can degrade the health of the soil. Absolutely. Uh, we, we, we have a pastured hog operation. Everybody says, oh, hogs will destroy pasture. Well, they will if you let them. They're pigs. But we don't let them. We use hogs to improve the health of the soil. So all of these tools, whether it's tillage, pigs, hemp, corn, whatever it is, it, a lot of it is, it's, it, its impact is based on your intent as a manager or as a farmer. Right. Uh, I can build a house with a hammer. I can tear it down with a hammer. It all depends on my intention as I swing that hammer. So uh, what, the way we use pigs is we're using them and manage them to build soil health. We're using hemp to build soil health. So yeah, right. hemp is an exciting uh, component. We think that hemp has a huge role to play in the uh, farm community. And we just want to make sure that once we get to growing more of it, uh, we're doing it in the right way. Well, yeah. And hemp, you know, hemp, I don't think people realize that the uses that hemp has, whether you're making it into building materials, whether you're making it into fabric, but there's a reason why hemp plants are planted all around the Chernobyl nuclear plant accident, because it's exactly. sucking all the crap out of the ground. Exactly. I mean, it is, it's an amazing, you know, and it's a weed, right? And that's the, I mean, technically it basically pretty much is a weed. I mean, it's a big one. I mean, it grows enormous size, but the, the benefits of what hemp is doing, I think is, I commend you for doing it. Keep it up because we need to, I think, do more work with hemp because I think it's going to make a, a much positive, uh, a, a bigger impact positively on our planet. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. It's going to make a huge impact. Yeah. So you got a couple of different programs that you guys have, um, you know, training programs. And one of which I'd like to touch on because I just think it's great uh, is your veteran farmer program. And if you wouldn't mind, just, just deep dive in that a little bit, because I just anything we can do to uplift our vets and anything we could do to make a difference uh, in, in people's lives that are working every day to make a difference in ours, even though we don't recognize it sometimes, I, I it's all for. So if you wouldn't mind 
sharing a little bit of that, that'd be awesome. Sure. Uh, I mean, Rodeo Institute clearly recognizes that we need more organic farmers. They're going to come from various pools, but we need more organic farmers. You know, we have in this country, and it's true around most of the world, uh, we have six times as many farmers over the age of 65 as we have under the age of 35. Yeah. That's a little scary. I don't care which club you belong to, what church you go to. Uh, if there's six times as many people over the age of 65 as under the age of 35, uh, and you're under the age of 35, you know who's going to be left turning on and off the lights. It's yeah. you. Uh, yeah. So uh, that's, that's a challenge. On the bright side, uh, you know, statistically, uh, the USDA says that, oh, and they're right. Over the next 20 years, 50% of the management of the landscape of this country is going to change. Mm-hmm. That is a huge opportunity because those farmers that are over the age of 65, wh- whether they think they're going to live forever or farm forever or not, uh, they won't. And so we know that there's going to be this massive, probably the largest changeover uh, turnover of land management that this nation has seen since the early 1800s. I would so agree. So it's a huge opportunity for those of us in the organic community to share our knowledge, to train new farmers, to bring them up to speed so that when they have the opportunity to take over that management, uh, they're tooled up for it. So, yeah, our veteran farmer training program is an exciting opportunity where we are dealing with a group of individuals that have served our country. They're interested in service. They want to take this knowledge that they have of running equipment or machinery, you imagine as a a young person in the military, you're entrusted with millions, sometimes billions of dollars worth of equipment and machinery. So so they know how to handle equipment and machinery. They're task oriented, they're bright and intelligent. And now they're coming to us and saying, we want to take that, that same drive and energy that we used for serving our country in one path to now shift over and change and serve in in another capacity to produce high quality, healthy food for a nation that wants it. And so we, um, we do have a very exciting veteran training program here. Uh, Veterans, uh, we have two different programs that we operate and people can come uh, through various channels uh, at various locations. We have opportunities at all of our locations for veteran training, whether it's in California or Pocono organics, where we have a couple of vets. Uh, We, can pretty much guarantee, not in every location that they want, but we can guarantee them access to land once they leave our training program. Uh, If somebody says, well, I want to farm in Arkansas, maybe I can't get access there. But we have enough farms here in Pennsylvania that we know we can put people on farms to experience and get them on some land where they can uh, have access to equipment, land, and uh, the support from the Institute that they need to to move Uh, forward. So we're excited about that. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for, you know, on uh, behalf of everybody pleasure. listening, thank you for doing that. And I hope that um, folks that hear us get the word out that if there's some vets out there that are looking for uh, an opportunity to learn, to do something different, to be a part of something different, um, to reach out to you guys and uh, figure out what it's going to take to uh, to help them move the ball down the field. Because you're right. We don't have the next generation of farmer. We don't have the next generation of organic farmer, especially. And that's going to be a very scary thing when you think about the billions more people that are going to be on this planet over time, plus the aliens coming down, which I think they're coming anyways, right? But it is certainly is, it's really actually a very concerning statistic when you think about that. And where's our food going to come from? And so 
uh, I would encourage everybody to uh, go check out the website for that that program and jump on board if you've got some vets that would like to do that because I think it's fantastic what you're doing. Yeah, it's Another, it's very it's very much a hands-on program. So, yeah, you know, it's not a uh, there is some classwork because we think that's important too that people understand why they're doing something. But we, it's really hands-on and we teach people how to farm when you know most of it is geared towards vegetable farming. But we've got a livestock component, we've got a grain component. People can focus where their interest and their energy wants to go. And and we can pretty much guarantee that when the veteran leaves our program, they're ready to take up the mantle and farm. We had one farmer trainee who was a military veteran. She also happened to be a uh, First Nations person and mm-hmm. came to, through our training program, went back to her, her community and was asked by the community to start an organic farm. And she said, I don't think I have enough skills or knowledge to do that. She called us and we said, look, trust your training. You know what you're doing. Uh, Jessica Greendeer and Jessica is now the manager of a First Nations organic farm, feeding the people in her community directly from the farm. It's an exciting story, but that's just one of many uh, veterans right. that come through our program and have gone back to the land and are farming to, to feed people. Well those, story, yeah, well, those stories are what's going to win the day. Right. Yeah. So thank you for thank you again for the for the program. And thank you for sharing that story, because I think it makes it extremely real. Another one of the projects that you guys have that I really like, too, is your uh, called my first garden project. And um, I just think it's really, really cool. Can you touch on that a little bit as well? Because I just think that's neat. Yeah, of course, we want to uh, we want to interact with adults in our coming out of our military program. We interact with Uh, Young adults who are in our uh, other farmer training programs, you don't have to be a veteran to be part of our farmer training programs, but we also want to interact with youth and get people started on this path to maybe not just farming, but begin to ask the right questions about where does my food come from and how is it produced and why should that be important to me, even as a, a three, four, five, six year old. So uh, we started a program called My First Garden, and it's a, an educational program that's focused on uh, preschool and kindergarten. Uh, kids slightly older than that could, could gain from it, too. And it is a, uh, a five-lesson course that uh, classroom instructors can use. All the tools mm-hmm. are there for anybody that signs up for it and, and wants to use it. Again, because we're a nonprofit, everything we do is free. We give stuff away. So any teacher in the country or any English speaking, I think it's only in English at the moment, but if somebody wanted to translate it into Spanish, we'll do it. Uh, anybody anybody in, in the world that wants to take that program and put it to work in their, in their classroom, everything is that the teacher needs is there from lesson plans it. to... Uh, to the snacks that they're going to serve, how they can serve organic snacks to those kids. Uh, every activity, there's uh, there's classroom learning, then there's outdoor activities, and we showcase that. There's a little video series goes with it, and it's all packaged together in this five-lesson plan where we walk uh, instructors, classroom instructors through that program to get, to get young people interested in this idea of healthy soil. You know, when when a five-year-old picks up an earthworm for the first time and you see the magic in their eyes as they're going, oh my goodness, there's creatures living under my feet in the soil. It just opens up their mind. Absolutely. All the possibilities. And you say, yeah, and that earthworm is helping you to produce the food that you eat on your plate. Pretty amazing. Oh. Kids can grow. You grow a plant, you know, if children plant a seed 
even if they never harvest it, if you stick a bean seed in the ground and you watch that and a couple of days later, something green comes up and you watch it grow. And of course, you know how fast beans will grow. They grow from a, pump, a pumpkin seed. Pretty soon there's a pumpkin there that's bigger than they are. And that, that just blows their mind that they can do that by simply the capturing the magic of soil and a seed and a little bit of water and sunshine. So we talk about those things in my first garden. It's a, it's a fun I project for, for kids. No, I think it's great. I, I mean, you know, to, to your point we talked about earlier, right? Are we looking to help promote the next generation of farmer that we don't know necessarily may exist when they're in preschool or kindergarten rather? Um, we're also looking at helping generate the next level of consumers that are going to be conscientious and vote with their dollars and to put things in front of them that, you know, allow them to better understand their food supply because we just can't do it and be baffled anymore. We really need to invest in that. So I appreciate, you know, well, and, the, and the, ne the next generation of consumer uh, consumers. Yes. But also the next generation of uh, communicators and journalists yeah. and bankers sure. and, and insurance salesmen. So when they're doing some banking and, and a farmer comes in or somebody wants to, they go, I, I, I know about, I know the risk involved with planting a seed. I mean, I, that it just is in the back of their head. Uh, and we do that year after year with people, they become much more in, in tune with what's going on around them. And so, yeah, Absolutely. when they go to the supermarket or the restaurant to purchase food, they want to know how that was produced because they know something about it, uh, even if it's way back in their childhood. Absolutely. I think, I, you know, look, those are the most, you know, the biggest impressions come when we're young, right? And I think we've got to get those right impressions in there and not um, right. some of some of the, the BS that's out there. I mean, it's just not going to win the day for us long term. It's not winning the day now. Yeah. Right. And it's only right. going to continue to get worse if we don't stop to elevate and recognize, again, this positive cost of food that these conversations need to be embracing. So I think it's great. I'm all for it. I'm, I mean, vets, kids, come on. That's a slam dunk in my world. Yeah, unfortunately, we've we've sort of even with farmers, we've made the conversation around easy, fast and cheap. And whenever you have easy, fast and cheap, you end up with pollution, contamination yeah. and externalized costs. The only way to make food production cheap is to externalize the cost. I mean, it costs a certain amount to produce things. And if you don't right. want to pay for it at the point of purchase in a supermarket or at a farm gate or, or, or at a restaurant, wherever you don't want to pay for it, you're going to pay for it somewhere else. And so we externalize all those costs and we've We've taken a food production system that unfortunately uh, makes people ill, externalize the cost into the pharmaceutical industry, and we pay for it there. But, you know, type 2 diabetes, we pay for it at the pharmaceutical uh, and at the uh, hospital right. and at the doctor's office instead of at the supermarket or the gym. We, we can fix these problems before they go to that, that length. That where level. Your, the quality of your life is degraded. Yeah. Yes. You know, you know, <laughs> we've, we've had uh, many conversations with medical practitioners over, over many different years and situations. And we actually had a doctor who was in charge of a diabetes, diabetes clinic. And he said, my goal is to not make people healthy. My goal is to keep them functioning so they can go out in the world, make money and spend it at my office. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's yes. sad. That's it is, really, really sad when he knows as well as you and I know that there are solutions out there where, with early intervention, they could have rectified that problem and given that person, uh, theoretically, a more productive, happy, healthier life. They just sure. wouldn't be coming through that revolving door every uh, 45 days to get their, their treatment from that hospital or that clinic. So it's, okay. but it's where we cool. are. Well, look, it, we, we have a run to a pill mentality in a lot of ways, as opposed to run to a lifestyle mentality. Right. 
I mean, well, I it's easy. It's, we it's part it's of that easy. easy, fast, and cheap. It's right. easy. We've made it fast, and you know, we we're, it's not always cheap. Yeah. But you hear some of the costs of these pharmaceuticals uh, quite expensive. But it is yeah. easy, and it is fast. So yes, take the pill. You'll feel better in twelve hours. Boom. That's what people want. They don't well, want I, changing your life. If you say change your diet, people go, "Oh man, no. that's not easy." Uh, no. Change your lifestyle. Start exercising. They go, "Yeah, I don't have time for that." No. Just give me a pill, doc. Right. Uh, we, we make it go away. Yeah. But again, you know, it, cheap food comes with a very, you know, it comes with a hidden cost. Right? It does. There's it does. no doubt about it. It comes with a hidden cost. And I think we need to keep that conversation elevated to understand those hidden costs and make better choices. Agreed. I want to get um, I want to get in to talk a little bit about regenerative ag a little bit, because I know you guys are you know, really banging that drum and leading to the forefront of that conversation. I think it's a, it's a, not, I want to say it's a hot button topic because it's not, but it's certainly is a hot topic um, that's out there today that people are trying to understand. Um, so I'd like to kind of just, you know, kind of bring it down to a basic level and just say, what's the difference between organic and sustainable and regenerative ag, if you wouldn't mind, or just give us a little bit of a frame up of the history of regen, if you can. Sure. Um, both organic and regenerative are Rodale Institute words. Uh, of course, we already talked about GI Rodale linking the word organic to agriculture and food production right. way back in the in 1940. Uh, jump forward about about uh, 35, 40 years. Uh, his son Robert Rodale was a very early proponent of the conversation around climate change. He was a mm -hmm. world traveler, went all over the world looking at the way food was being produced, and he said. Organic is great, but it's missing some pieces and it's missing the piece around uh, climate change and the impact agriculture can have on the climate. At the same time, if you think back to the, the mid 1980s, really even the, the late 1970s, people were already beginning to use the word sustainable and sustainability. Uh, you just mentioned the word, as you said, what's the difference between these systems? Organic today, uh, of course, as it pertains to the, the US uh, government and, the, and sales in the United States, we have a USDA definition of what the word organic right. means. They own that word. And I think that's great. You know, a lot of people, uh, still are critical of the fact that the U.S. government is involved in the word organic, but I think it's really helped us legitimize that word and grow the industry by leaps and bounds. If you look For sure. over the recent history, we've made a lot of progress in that word. And, you know, marketing wise, that word has meaning in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. It has that meaning because of uh, the USDA standard and, of course, other standards that are supported in other countries as well, not just the U.S., um, but we know that that standard has very fi uh, finite rules and regulations around it. Uh, then came the word sustainable, which today means everything and it means nothing at the same yeah. time. There are yeah. no rules and regulations. If you say you're sustainable, you know, I guess you're sustainable. Uh, uh, there's no way to prove that you're not because there's no regulations around that word. Yeah, so no people definition. put So everybody, they use it like they use the word light. Or new and improved, natural. or natural. Uh, yeah. Just put it, put it on there, and people will buy it. Uh, is it sustainable? I don't know. What does it really mean? You know, there are some people who that have tried uh, over the, the the last few decades to put some word meaning around that, like we did with organic, but it's been challenging. So we're coming up with this word that means everything and means nothing. And Robert Rodale was looking for a better word. He said sustainability is actually a very weak word. If somebody asked you how your relationship was with your significant other and you said sustainable, 
would they be happy or would they be sad? Sad. Uh, yeah, they'd be sad and go, well, that doesn't sound like a relationship I'd want to be in. It's sustainable. Uh, but if somebody, if you, somebody said, well, it's regenerating, you'd be like, well, God bless you. You know, it's, it's moving forward. Right. I'm glad that you, it's get, you're taking positive steps forward. And so Bob Rodale really liked the word regenerative and regenerative agriculture. And he started using that word, but he always linked it to the word organic. So when we talk about regenerative agriculture here at Rodale Institute, we talk about regenerative organic agriculture. So we link those words together because we don't believe you can be regenerative without using organic as the, as the launch pad, because you can't, you know, it's a little bit like saying, I want to be an athlete, but I still want to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day. Right. Well, you can't be an athlete and be a smoker at the same time unless you're superhuman, maybe. Um, so we're saying you can't say I'm interested in healthy soil. I want to regenerate the health of my soil, but I want to keep spraying all those pesticides on it. Yeah. Well, it doesn't work that way. You know, right. if you want to, if you want a PhD, you actually have to go to school and earn it. You can't just get it, you know? Uh, so saying you have one and having one are two different things. Um, so we've, we have worked over the last uh, five years or so to create a standard around the word regenerative linked to organic and it's the regenerative organic certification standard housed by the regenerative organic alliance roa we created a separate nonprofit with help from some very strategic partners uh dr bronner's uh soap and uh patagonia uh, patagonia provisions and patagonia fiber uh, were really helped us and were inspirational in helping us move that from a conversation that we had uh on uh, on a listserv that got way out of hand as people, I, I thought, uh, I thought World War III was coming as we talked about the word regenerative and people wanted to claim all sorts of meanings around that word. And mm -hmm. so we, we pulled that back and, and created what we now call the rock certification and put some real language and uh, regulation around the word regenerative. And what we did was we based it on three very distinct pillars that theoretically were all embodied right. in the word organic back in the 50s and 60s, but that we lost when we uh, transitioned that word to a USDA standard. You know, when you work with the federal government, unfortunately, you're going to give some things up. One of the things that we gave up was this idea of continuous improvement. It's really hard for the US government to certify something around continuous improvement because they go, I don't know what that means. Right. Uh, we, um, we talk about in the organic standard, we talk about the, the word soil health, but yet there's very little teeth in the regulation around soil health, so much so that you can now have a soilless systems right. and be certified as organic. You don't have to have soil in the system. And we're saying, well, that doesn't feel like soil health when you're saying we'll just grow it in a building with, you know, aquaponics or hydroponics. Well, that's a big debate. Uh, it's a big debate, uh, but it does take the word soil out of the system uh, as it relates to agriculture. And so we wanted to put the idea of continuous improvement back into our conversation. We wanted to put soil back into the conversation. We also wanted to put the concept of animal welfare into our regenerative standard, because you can't have a truly regenerative system that uh, doesn't treat the animals that we use in it or consume from it in a, in, in a humane manner. And then we also added a social justice component, because again, you can't Nobody wants to support an organic system that is built on the backs of labor that's mistreated in the production model. Absolutely. If, if uh, we know that consumers come to the marketplace 
with a whole suite of values, not an individual value. So if they're picking up two containers of a product and one is certified organic and the other one is certified uh, fair trade or some other social justice label, if they pick that up, they might say, well, both these values are important to me as an individual, as a consumer, as a shopper. Why am I forced to decide which product I want based on the two separate values I have? Because the uh, organic label is completely silent on the areas of social justice because of where we place it. We place it in the USDA ag marketing division, which has no lexicon, no language, no uh, textual component by which to even discuss social justice issues. It's not part of their mandate. And so it it can't and won't be there. But yet we think it's important as we look at the whole spectrum of values that consumers shop with that are important to them as we look at the organic community of both producers and, and consumers. I love it. I love it. So tell me a little bit about, um, you know, why it's important though. I mean, I know we kind of touched on it a little bit, but, you know, to your point of you're kind of elevating the bar now, you're kind of, you're certainly raising the level of consciousness with people to get them to think a little bit deeper about their food choices. Um, and I want to get a little bit deeper. I do want to get into the technology side of it, but I kind of I want to kind of get some of this, the importance of the regen out a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, just to kind of frame yeah. this up as we as we drill down. This episode of Todd Versations is brought to you by Alexander Family Farm, bringing you the finest certified regenerative organic milk, eggs, and dairy products from our family farm to your family's table. We are committed to providing nutrient-dense A2 milk. To learn more about us, our products, and where to shop, go to alexanderfamilyfarm.com. Sure. Uh, Our goal is to set a very high bar standard. We know that the only way to transform and drive any industry or community is by setting a high standard and a high bar. You know, uh, I'm old enough to remember uh, when I was in high school and thinking of a high bar makes me think of when we used to do a jump over a high bar. And I would... I was no, I'm, I'm five foot six. You can't see it sitting here, but you can imagine uh, high jumping was a challenge for me. Um, but there was a lot of other people that couldn't do it either. But if you looked at the Olympics and there's people who could jump a high bar, when they'd run to the bar, they would jump over the bar one foot first. The bar would pass under their chest. And if right. they were successful, they would land on a big bag on the other side and the bar would stay standing. And in 1970, I believe 72, along comes a guy named Fallsbury. Yeah. And he runs towards the bar and instead of jumping foot first, he turns and he jumps with his head first right. and the bar, instead of passing under his chest, passed under his back and he landed successfully on the bag on the other side. And everybody went, what the hell was that? Fallsbury flop. Fallsbury flop. And everybody said, that's not how you do it. But he won the, I mean, he suddenly, right. suddenly the bar got raised because you can jump much higher going head first Correct. backwards than foot first forward. Correct. And so he took this, this traditional thing that had been done for hundreds of years one way, turned it upside down, made it completely different. And now, of course, nobody jumps over the bar the old traditional way. Everybody does it the Fallsbury way. Right. Uh, and, and I don't know how successful he was in his career. It doesn't really matter. What we're trying to do is the exact same thing. Change the standard, set the bar at a different place, and everybody has to follow. Whether they get there or not, I don't know. But we have a lot of farmers that are... Uh, interested in leapfrogging over the word organic 
to regenerative organic because they said, you know, if, if you go to a, a developing nation, they're not putting in a knob and tube wiring like I might have in my old farmhouse. They're going right to fiber optic and they're going to all kinds of high tech uh, solutions. Nobody puts in old technology. So we have farmers that are saying, hey, we want to go to the latest and greatest. We're glad we have a high bar standard that we can work towards because we want to relay that story to our customers about the fact that we are taking care of people. We are taking care of animals. We are taking care of the soil. We are getting the chemicals out of the system. Everything that's important to you is in there. You know, one farmer said to me, I feel like a Boy Scout with a sash full of merit badges because I'm organic, I'm halal, I'm fair trade, I'm animal welfare. I got, I'm running out of room to put all these labels and stickers on my, on my food product label. And to carry that Boy Scout, and I was a terrible Boy Scout, Todd. I was, uh, they, I think they asked me to leave when I was about 12 because I was kind yeah, of, they didn't, they didn't was, invite me. Yeah, I was kind of a naughty kid, uh, which is probably why I'm really gravitated to organic. But be that as it may, uh, if you are a Boy Scout and you work really, really hard and you get all these merit badges, sure, you can become an Eagle Scout. Right. And I don't know how many badges it takes to get become an Eagle Scout. I don't know if it's 20 or 200. It doesn't matter. You do enough work, you can get an Eagle Scout, and then that's the only badge you wear. And here at Rodale Institute, because I get to see uh, uh, resumes and, and letters of, of interest as people apply for positions here, if you were a Boy Scout 20 years ago and you were an Eagle Scout, people still put it on their resume. Because mm -hmm. Absolutely it, they do. it certainly means something to other Boy Scouts, uh, but it also indicates their commitment to a discipline, to working hard, to getting something that's achievable. Uh, and so what this farmer said to me is instead of having a sash full of merit badges, can't I just get that Eagle Scout badge that says everything that's important to people it's in that is in my food product. And so we said, yes, consumers deserve that. You deserve that. Plus you get all those certifications. It costs money. If we can roll right. that all up into one, we can make it more cost effective for the producer, more cost effective for the consumer and all those things that are important to us as individuals and as a global community come into play. You know, we, the business that we're in, the business of, of food and the business of organic food is, is so unique because, and you touched on it earlier, it's a morals and values play in a lot of ways, right? In some ways, mm -hmm. somehow we're connecting with this food on that kind of a level. And as a marketer, that's a dream to have that. You know, I say it all yeah. the time. If you're, if you're selling paper towels, you're not going to get that kind of vibe. So to, it be, to, to elevate that conversation... Um, to bring people to a higher level of awareness, again, of where their food dollar is going and that vote that they're making, you know, I, I think it's certainly worthy to have these conversations to put it out there. But, you know, and, and I want to come back around, you know, as, back to the technology thing a little bit, but there's criticism around regenerative. I think there is with anything, right? You do something good, somebody's going to, you know, if something good, if you do something that you're doing is good and it affects somebody else, somebody's going to come up with a, you know, a negative narrative. Welcome to today's world, right? Uh, we're seeing that in every aspect of it. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about some of that that's out there in the press and in the media and, and just throw it out on the table for conversation. And one of the big things that I hear from people is, and it's interesting to me because when I started in this, you know, down this path of, you know, back when the dinosaurs were roaming the ground, I felt the exact same way to this question as I'm going to ask you is about scalability of Regen Ag, right? And being able to pull it off at a large scale. And that's one of the things that we ran into early on when I was dialing every day to try to get somebody to buy something from us, you know, on the phones is some of the pushback we get was it would never scale. You're never going to get organic to scale. You touched on it earlier. You're never going to get enough nitrogen. You're never going to be able to figure this all out. 
Well, lo and behold, it's a $62 billion industry today. You know, and all those mornings sitting on the phone on hold for 30 minutes for a buyer to tell me no, just to try to get a pallet sold to them, you know, I think laid some of that groundwork out to where we are today. And I'm proud of that. But it does remind me so much of that, my history. So tell me a little bit about the scalability of Regen, because, you know, when you're a grain farmer, I think it's one perspective, but as, as a row crop guy, you know, here in California, it's a little bit different. So if you could touch on that a little bit, it'd be great. Yeah, you know, I, well, I think you, you you already sort of answered the, the question. I was trying to make uh, it easy on you. You, you. you did. I mean, yes, there's always naysayers out there. Everybody sure. said, oh, you can't farm organically. And then we did it. And they said, okay, well, you can do it, but you can't do it at scale. And then we do it at scale. And they say, okay, well, you can do it at scale, but I can't do it at scale. It's like, no matter where you go, uh, you know, people say, oh, it doesn't work here, or I can't do it. And they always look for reasons for that. And the same thing is true with regenerative organic. People say, oh, it's great, but you can't scale it. And then you hold up uh, examples of somebody who is, who is doing it. You know, I've got friends, uh, and it's not just the U.S. Yeah, 62 billion in the U.S., but worldwide, it's almost oh. double that. Not quite, yeah. but almost. Um, now, I've got a friend in Argentina, 34,000 acres organic. He said, everybody said you can't do it at scale. He goes, 34,000 is pretty big. You know, Good it's number. A, yeah, it's a, a row crop farm. And um, yeah, he said, you know, we, we can do it at scale. Can we do regenerative organic at scale? He's like, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, what you're trying to do is take organic to the next level. So if you're a good organic farmer and you're managing your system well, there's no reason you can't add in these other components to that. Theoretically, you should be treating your employees well anyway. If you're not, then we need to scale that up, uh, whether it's in the Central Valley of California or uh, in Punjab, uh, India. India. We have to, we, yeah, we have to work on that and we have to treat people fairly uh, because that's just part of what we consider to be a regenerative organic system. And you can scale that up and, and it can be practical. Uh, are there risks involved? Of course, there's always risks with any kind of change. If you want risk-free, you know, uh, get a lawyer. They'll tell you to sit on a chair in a corner. Don't touch anything. Don't eat anything. Don't drink anything. It's pretty risk-free. Um, but that's no way to, to live. Uh, you know, so are there risks involved? Yeah. Uh, is taking a recipe that conventional agriculture has come up with that has been passed out from the land grant universities through their extension agents out to farms. Is that risky? Yes. But what do we do about that risk? We create a crop insurance. So every one right. of your listeners, whether they're a farmer or not, they buy crop insurance because we have said that it is so risky that we have to have crop insurance and crop insurance is so sure that it's going to fail that we have to subsidize it through our taxpayer system. Otherwise, farmers could never afford to pay for it. Right. Is driving a car risky? Yes. If you drive drunk all the time and you're arrested and have DUIs, does your insurance go up? Yes, because you're a higher risk. Right. But we treat farmers as if they're all the same. And we say they're all it's risky all over the place. What we're doing with regenerative organic is we're actually reducing that risk. We're taking the risk out of the system biologically. And so we can actually save money by not paying as much crop insurance. But are there risks in transitioning? Yes. Is there a risk in going from uh, high school to college? Yes. That's it. My, I have a grandson. That I, I just started taking him to middle school. He was scared to death to go from fifth grade to sixth grade because there's a risk. New school, bigger kids, don't know where I'm going. Oh, changing classes in between. Oh no, what do I do? How am I gonna find the lunchroom? Where do I put my sneakers? Uh, all kinds of questions, all kinds of right. risks. 
He's been there for a few weeks now, a month and a half. Uh, ask him if he loves it. He loves it. I know where everything is. The risk is gone. He feels good. Uh, right. Is getting married risky? Heck yeah. Transition uh, from being single to being married. Big transition. Is it a good risk? Yes, it is. Is it worth taking? Uh, millions of people think so. We do it all the time. Yeah. So is transitioning to a regenerative organic system risky? Yes, but it's risk that can be managed and there's help out there to walk you through the process, to minimize that risk, help you learn the new skills and tools that you're going to need. And if farming no longer becomes a recipe for disaster, but a recipe for success. So let's, you know, I want to talk a little bit of back to the technology play now a little bit in regenerative ag. And, and one of the things that kind of comes at with the soil argument, you know, soil, no soil, greenhouse to soil argument is, and I say this all the time, I, I know technology to me isn't an and or an or, it's an and proposition. There's things to learn from it. You know, um, the greenhouse guys aren't going to win the soil argument and the soil guys struggle to win the water argument. And it ends up being this back and forth of, of, of people kind of pointing fingers, however you want to describe it. You know, obviously food is the most important equation because we've got to feed the planet. We want to feed the planet as much good food as we possibly can. So one of the things that I hear from people is it starts to become this now organics becoming too elitist, right? It's becoming this next generation. It's not talking to the common person anymore or raising this bar. And I, you know, I get what they're saying. I don't necessarily know. I agree with some of what they say and how they say it, uh, especially from my perspective when, you know, we, there was no runway. I mean, it was literally for those that know, there was a book called the blue book in our industry that had everybody's credit listing. And I flipped that page after page after page, trying to find people to give me a PO for anything back in those days, promising that the stuff wasn't garbage. So talk to me a little bit about technology and regenerative ag and that whole conversation around soil and the greenhouse of where this is at. And, and I want to get down the political trail. I mean, we, wherever you're comfortable taking it, I'm fine with, uh, because it is kind of a hot button argument or, or topic, but I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, well, uh, clearly regenerative organic agriculture embraces technology of many different kinds. Uh, robotic technology, of course, we're excited about that and where that's leading us in the, in the production side. Um, drone technology, uh, again, embodying cool. that as, as we use that to uh, map and track uh, soil uh, health indicators across broad swaths of land as we try to scale up what we're doing to a, uh, a large, to the larger scale possible. Um, the particular technology that you're talking about with greenhouse operations, I mean, we're, we're certainly in favor of greenhouses, but most organic farms in the vegetable world use them, whether yeah. it's to create starts or whatever it is. Uh, we grow in, in, in greenhouses. We just helped uh, Pocono Organics build a state-of-the-art, huge greenhouse facility, uh, but we're growing in the beds, I mean, in, in the soil. So there are no benches. We're growing in the soil in a greenhouse. We can extend the seasons and grow year-round in the soil. We think that's really important. Now, the conversation around uh, hydroponics as a greenhouse or where you're not even in a greenhouse, where you're just in a, a warehouse with, with lights and the, the issues of water use and, and non-water use, we can talk about that. Uh, for us at Rodale Institute, for the regenerative organic certification standard, it's really about using the technology to its fullest, to, as its wisest point, to produce the foods that are going to make us healthy. If we ate, if, if we as humans ate nothing but hydroponically produced vegetables, we would get sick and die. We Why do you say that? Because we are we're pretty smart and we're pretty clever as individuals. And we have figured out what it takes to put in a bag to grow a head of lettuce for 30 days. 
we're trying to grow a human for 90 or 100 years. There's a lot of things. For example, the soil is the only place we as humans can get ergothionine. Ergothionine is an amino acid that's produced by soil funguses. Some mushrooms can produce it as well. Right. But it's produced by soil funguses, and it helps the human body fight off neurological diseases like attention deficit disorder, Alzheimer's, and uh, autism. What's on the rise in this country? Autism, attention deficit disorder, and Alzheimer's. Sure, but that's in, but when, that, in all fairness, but that's in a broad brushstroke of food too, though. I mean, that's just not related oh, to produce. No, no, it's a broad brushstroke of food. Yeah. Absolutely. Broad brushstroke of food. But I'm saying if all we ate was hydroponic vegetables, that's what my, was my statement, yeah, we yeah. would not get ergothionine in our diet. And over two generations, we would be in trouble, huge trouble. Uh, because we're not getting all of those things that the soil is doing for us. And so many things, we didn't even know what ergothionine was doing to it for us up until uh, 10 years ago, if that. Right. How many things is, is, are in the soil in microscopic, minuscule amounts? Ergothionine levels in our diet in general have dropped about uh, 30 to 40% over the last 50 years. That's scary. If it drops another 30, 40% over the next 50 years, everybody is going to have one of those neurological disorders. We know that the soil can help us manage uh, and control diseases like colon cancer. There's materials in the soil that do that for us. That they're not in the bag in the hydroponic system because we didn't put them there because we don't know they exist and we don't know what they are. And so we can't put them there because it's a put and take system. When I started in the organic community, as we already identified, you know, almost uh, a half century ago, we were very adamant about talking about organic as not being a one-to-one -one substitution. I can't use this product, so I will use that product. Right. We, we said it was a systems approach of managing soil so that if you feed and take care of the soil, the soil will feed and take care of you. And now what we're saying with hydroponic is, oh, no, it really is a one-to-one -one substitution. I can't use this source of nitrogen, but I can use this. I can't use this antifungal or anti-algae agent, but I can use this uh, uh, to keep the pipes clean. So there's all these things that we're saying it is a one-to-one -one substitution uh, here at Rodale Institute. And of course, with our regenerative organic certification standard, we say that that is not uh, appropriate for a, a regenerative organic system. Now, is, is, it a, is it a cool system with a lot of technology that, as you said, we can learn from everybody? Absolutely. Should we right. be raising hydroponic food? I have no problem with that. I've bought hydroponic food. That's not the issue. The issue for me is it's not organic. Right. It, it, yeah. And whether the USDA well, says it can be or not, I understand that. That's a, you're at, well, you're no, it, for my opinion. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Totally. And, and that's what I'm saying uh, for, and for Rodale Institute's impression uh, and where we stand is that that is not. Uh, a legitimate organic system. It's a cool system, lots to learn from it. Uh, they can market it the way they market it and that's great, but is it organic? Yeah, uh, well, look, no. in, in, you know, we yeah. say it's we say it's not. Some say it is. That's the argument right. that's going on. Yeah, out it's there a hot and, it's a hot it's a really hot sure. topic. And it, and it is. And it, you know, one of the things that really concerns me and, and I've said this before and I've said it publicly is that, you know, I always feel like we need to, no, no matter what, we need to continually ra to be raising the bar. So, you know, as organics are in these greenhouses hydroponically um, doing what they're doing, there needs to be some kind of a standard to raise that bar to make sure, because one of the things that's very scary that's out there today is this new beyond organic movement. And I don't know how hip you are to this, where people are leaning into this, even though they're not organic producers at all, they're not even certified, they're not even in the club. They're making this claim they're beyond organic now because- right. 
they're using no pesticides, no human hands, less water, all the, you know, all the attributes you want to go at it. And it's gotten to the point now where it's actually on people's labeling in the marketplace, which is very dangerous because we're, because we're drowning this down, which is, yeah, you know, we're drowning down the importance of our food. Um, and that's really concerning to me. So I'm sorry to get off onto that. So no, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. I really, yeah, so I, I, I think the debate personally, I would, and I've said this, and I said this at the NOSB meeting, I would love to get in the room with everybody that, you know, both sides of the equation, open up a beer and let's talk this thing through and figure out how we're going to chart a path on raising the bar. Mm-hmm. Right. And how do we get to that point? At least in my opinion, because yeah, we're, I think we're that, certainly all about high bar standards for us. Yeah. So, and, and I thank you for sharing with me and I'm not wanting, and I'm not, you know, I'm not looking for a, a, a toe to toe on this. You're, you're, you're not going to get a, you're not going to get a fight. No, from me. no, it's, I, it's, I, it's, it's, it's your program, Todd. Why would I fight with you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mean it that way at all. I just think it's so important to get that overall perspective. That's why I asked the question of you, because I, you know, I knew what the answer was going to be. Um, but I think it's important, and when, especially when we go back to the words, like I said, like, you know, people have this elitist perception. We got to stop this kind of stuff. We're not getting anywhere right with it. We've got to come together and find a well, solution. Well, and, but people are doing the same thing with the word regenerative because they don't Absolutely. agree that it should be linked to the word organic. So we have people that say, oh, no, you can be so what we're saying is you can be organic, but you don't need soil. Oh, you can be regenerative, but you can still use pesticides. Right. Everybody wants to be what like we some, are correct. without doing the work by finding a shortcut, cheating the system, circumventing, doing whatever is easiest for them. And right. that's where we come back to that easy, fast and cheap. Everyone right. wants that easy button. I mean, they advertise it on TV. Hit the easy button. You see it on people's desks. Hit well, the easy just, button. Right. That's what everybody wants. And unfortunately, the biology of food production is not easy. It's it is not. not fast and it is not cheap, but it will but sustain us and, and, and make a healthy person and a healthy environment and a healthy climate out, absolutely. out of this planet. Yeah, we and and we've got to have these and we've got to have these conversations. Right. We, we right. really do, because I think that. The, 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 that argument, that conversation, I think, elevates your work. Right. Sure. I think it draws I think it draws into that that deeper conversation of the why right behind it. And that's you know my next question for you, too, is, is in my thought process is like, what is you know, where is regenerative agriculture right now in this political process? Because, and I don't mean political, you know, the left, right side, but I'm talking about whether it's USDA, FDA, all this other side. I mean, I, you know, I want to make a broad brushstroke. You say the sure. word political today, it's like, you know, who knows what the hell that now means. So, you know, where are you guys in, in that process? Well, uh, you know, we, um, we, we, have, we have two sort of points of activity in the political process. One is, uh, Rodeo Institute created the Organic Farmers Association mm-hmm. a few years ago. As uh, just this past January, a little less than a year ago, we spun it off as a separate nonprofit. Uh, it's sort of like those great TV shows, you know, they spin off uh, sequels uh, or whatever, you know, a, a, another uh, another show right. spun off of some of the great cast of characters. So we had a great cast of characters. We spun that off as a separate uh, nonprofit, uh, mainly because we were getting to the point where. Um, the Organic Farmers Association wanted to have some political conversations that the Institute in and of itself were not comfortable with. Uh, we can't sue the USDA and also ask them for money to do research at the same time, you know? <laughs> probably it's not. Like, yeah, it's probably like, you know, if you tell your father you don't like him, but hey, but give me 20 bucks when you're a kid, he's going to go, I don't think so. You know, it doesn't work that way. So, um, we, we, we decided that it would be more uh, in, in organic farmers' best interest to separate uh, that, that policy or political kind of ramification. So we still do our work, and we are the uh, prime supporter of 
the Organic Farmers Association, and, and we're active there. Uh, we are also working uh, behind the scenes in politics. You may have heard uh, during his uh, State of the Union address, uh, President Biden said, we're going to facilitate the planting of cover crops on every farm across the nation, and we're going to make it cost effective. He didn't know what that, what that meant, uh, but we worked hard. The Institute worked really hard behind the scenes with other legislators to get those words into his speech, get him to say cover crops. I don't care how, where, when. And so he said it. The first president ever said the words Probably. cover crops. Uh, and I'm sure if you ask him what it means, he doesn't know. Uh, he hasn't had a clue, but it was in his speech. So he read it off the teleprompter. Perfect. Sure. We got that language out there. So do we continue to work behind the scenes to, to get this move, this conversation about regenerative organic moving forward? Yes. It, the beauty of what we're talking about here is it, it plays to both sides of the aisle because it is a, both a human health activism, climate change story, but it's also an economic story story. We know that farmers that are farming organically or regenerative organically are more profitable. If you're right. in the business of farming, uh, you probably are there because you love the work, but you also stay there because you make a profit. So you have to be profitable. It is a business. It's a lifestyle. It's, it's, it's your position in the community. It's many things, but it also has to be profitable. So if we can showcase, we're not suggesting that, oh, be regenerative organic and make less money. I and mean, that's not going to play in Peoria. So, oh, and, and we don't expect that to play. Uh, and so we have to showcase how, yes, we can use less energy while we produce food. We can uh, be more profitable. We can release, uh, uh, release fewer uh, carbons into the atmosphere. Uh, there's so many things we can do with an organic and regenerative organic system that make it worthwhile. But even if you don't believe in that stuff, economically, it makes sense too. So we sure. have all of these pieces in place and that's really what's driving the industry as it continues to grow and mature uh, by leaps and bounds, whether it's organic or regenerative organic, we're making progress on a daily basis because when you talk to customers and consumers, they say, oh, it's better for people on the planet, right? They don't know the ins and outs of organic. Nobody has time to learn what you and I have spent decades learning. Uh, we don't expect them to. But the fact mm -hmm. that when you talk to consumers and say, why did you buy an organic item? They go, oh, well, it's healthier for me or it's better for the planet. Fact, they know that, that morals they value that. choice. That's right. And so that's the, and that's what we hope to do and get that on people's thought process so that they begin to, to, to support that in the marketplace. Well, look, I, I think the future's bright. For regenerative ag, I really do. Absolutely, I, I think it's I, I think it's a work in progress. I mean, from my like I said earlier, from my perspective, I get it in the in the how it's growing and what it is, and I, I totally understand because I've been there, done that in a different way, right? But still with the word organic around me. Can you share one more time? And I just want to make sure that we get this clear about your certification and your seal and that process for growers. So if they're listening and they're and they're thinking, hey, I want to do this, I know obviously they can go to the website. It makes it simple, but could you just kind of just quickly frame that back up really quick one more time about the certification and the seal that's involved. Sure. Uh, the, uh, the, the seal is the letters are rock ROC regenerative organic certification. It's housed by the regenerative organic Alliance. So if people want to get the information, just Google search or whatever your search engine is uh, go to regenerative organic Alliance. You'll get more information than you ever wanted to know uh, all the regulations, all the rules are there. The basic premise is we, we are starting with a launching pad of certified organic. So if you're currently certified organic, 
the hardest step is already done. If you're not, we walk you through the process and we'll, right. we'll get you there. But there is a transition period. It's the same transit. If you're not certified organic and you want to become rock certified, it's not like you have to tra- get certified organic first and then do something else. It all happens simultaneously. So it's a one-step process. It's still the same three years that it is or 36 months that it is for organic. So that right. transition process is seamless. If you're already organic, then you're going to have to... Uh, begin to look at the information you're going to have to collect. You're used to being audited by your organic certifier. Now you're going to add a few extra steps to the audit. One being animal welfare. Oh, I have no animals on my farm. Check that one off. You don't have to deal with that one. Right. The other, the other, the big component is this idea of continuous improvement and soil health. So you're going to have to be able to document and showcase what you're doing on your farm, what you're changing every year, every couple of years to try to make an improvement. And most farmers want to improve their system anyway. Anybody that's doing the exact same system today that they did 40 years ago is probably not a good manager anyway. Well, Well, no, they're not. We've masked some of that bad management with uh, recipes from chemical companies uh, where you get, you know, consultants will come in and say, oh, spray this, oh, spray that. You don't have to know anything, just, you know, how to operate the sprayer. And you can even get that done with a custom applicator. So, uh, you know, what we're saying is you're going to need to learn some new skills, go to some meetings, learn something new. Maybe you're planting new cover crops. You're saying, I'm switching up my cover crops because I I think I can get an extra round of cover crops in my system to improve my soil health. Great. I'm doing something to uh, minimize the the need for irrigation. I've cut my irrigation from uh, four waterings a year to three. Perfect. Those are continuous improvement across a spectrum of of, uh, applications. Uh, So that's probably the hardest one for farmers to get their head around the idea that they're going to have to continuously improve. We're going to ask them to track and monitor the health of their soil. So it's not as simple as just checking the box on your organic certification and said, yeah, soil health is important to me. Uh, I checked the box. No, you're actually going to have to showcase how you're managing for healthier soil. Right. How are you improving the health of your soil over time? And then, of course, the last uh, pillar is the social justice issue. If you have farm employees and it's not... uh, uh, we've had farmers come to us and say, oh, well, look, you know, we're, we're blueberry farmers in the state of Maine. And when it's blueberry harvesting season, all the cousins get together, all the aunts and uncles, and we all go out to the field and, and I don't pay them a living wage. It's like, yeah, it's not about that. It's like, that's, that's family. That's different. Or we will have plain, plain sect folks that will say, oh, you know, on my Amish farm, uh, one way we teach our, or instill in our children a, a solid work ethic is we have them out in the field as young children and they're helping. I mean, it, it can't be an abusive system if they're shackled no. there, then that's a different story. But if they're playing in the field and helping you husk corn or, or pick peaches or whatever it is they're doing, sure, of course that happens. And that's how you treat, teach children on a farm. Really? My, my children, we have a dairy, my son has a dairy farm at home uh, and my grandchildren, you know, they, they bottle feed calves. They do. It's how you get kids used to being around animals and, and enjoying farm work and farm life. Absolutely. Um, That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about bringing in uh, labor through a contractor where you pay a contractor a thousand dollars and what he does with the money, you don't know. And he brings in a crew, they pick the peaches and they leave and he gave nothing to the crew and they, they, they slept in a van and you know, that's not what the people who are buying organic or regenerative organic peaches. That's not what they expect. No. Or you're, you're buying, you know, cotton's a big one. You know, most organic cotton is still hand harvested and it comes yeah. from overseas. Some of it, unfortunately, is being harvested by uh, kids, children, kids that should be in school, but they're forbidden to go to school because especially if they're girls, they got to be out in the field picking cotton. 
and nobody, uh, Patagonia, for example, does not want to see a bale of cotton. You know, if you've ever seen cotton harvesting, they put the bales by the side of the road when they're going to be picked up and they take a right. can of spray paint and they spray paint on the bale who it belongs to. So right. it belongs to Todd and they'll put Todd's name on that bale. And there's your bale. You don't want somebody stand there taking a picture of that with a bunch of children uh, harvesting cotton in the background and then right. coming to uh, to you holding up their, their iPad or their cell phone and going, we're about to go to the news with this on your product. Uh, can you explain that? And you go, Oh boy. Right. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know that. But if you're rock certified, you do know that. Then you say, right. well, no, no, no. Uh, social justice is an important pillar to my certification standard. If what you're showing me is true and I'm not saying it is, but if it is, then you need to go talk to the folks at the regenerative organic Alliance. Cause I paid my certification fee and my audit fees to ensure that that never happens. happens and then right. they go, okay, sorry, I'll go somewhere else. That's the conversation you want to have. So yeah. we know that people want to improve the health of their soil. We know that most farmers want to treat their employees well, their animals should be treated well, and that they do want to improve the health of the soil. So all of those components are really just catering to what farmers want to do, should be doing, and in many cases already are doing. Right. We're just certifying it, documenting it so that consumer knows they can trust that product in the marketplace, that that suite of values is embodied and embedded into the product that they're paying a reasonably uh, fair price for. Well, I, I say it all the time, labor is a positive cost of food. Yeah. And, and one that needs to be better understood, in my opinion, a fair wage, a fair living. You know, there's companies out that are making that impact. And I, and I appreciate you getting into that because I think it's really important to yeah. continue that dialogue and conversation. You know, you've been doing this a long time and you're a part of an organization that is it's it's pretty cool. I mean, you know, I mean, it's pretty darn cool what you guys are doing from the research side to helping you know, veterans to helping young people to, to really raising, like we talked about, like raising the bar and having these conversations. I think it's really important. What inspires you? Because you got to get up every day. You've been doing this a long time, 46 years, a long time, right? What is, yeah, it's, you? It, 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 is, it is a long time. Uh, you know, I'm always inspired by the farmers that we work and serve and get to work alongside of. I've been blessed and fortunate to be able to travel around the world, meet farmers from, Many, many places. Uh, they are their best and greatest people on the planet getting up every day. I've never met a farmer, conventional or organic, that got up this morning and said, my goal is to destroy the health of the soil or to make people sick or to negatively right. impact the planet or the climate. That's not what farmers try to do. So yeah. I've really been fortunate to be able to work with some of the best and brightest people. Here at Rodale Institute, we've got a staff and a team of committed scientists, journalists, writers, educators, uh, technicians that get up every day and they inspire me with their commitment to our work, to our mission, uh, to getting up and doing it. We do it as a team. So yeah, I've been here a long time, but again, work with people who could work and have worked uh, all over the world in many different institutions, uh, land grant universities, uh, universities in China, everywhere. They choose to work here because of the work that we're doing. I love because, it. because we're having an impact. We are changing the world one farm at a time, one consumer at a time, one vegetable at a time, one acre at a time. We just get up every day and keep working. And it's just, it's, it's, uh, my wife always says, I have no idea how blessed and fortunate I am to have spent my career working at a place where we make a difference in people's lives and, and in the planet. And I, I couldn't agree with her more. It's just a fantastic uh, opportunity. And yes, the Rodeo Institute is a very unique and exceptional place. 
Uh, but it's because of, not because of me, but because of the other people that work here, because of our board of directors, because of the staff that sure. are committed, committed to this work and to making a difference. It's exciting. I love it. I love it. All right, let's shift gears real quick. Let's shift yeah. gears as we wind this sucker down a little bit. We do something on every broadcast that uh, now is kind of taken off as being a thing. It's a little TLC trivia, we call it. So I'm going to throw you a couple fast questions, see what your answers are real quick. All just right. to have a little fun on the wind down. Well, okay, what, uh, what land animal has the largest set of eyes i didn't know this one I, yeah exactly i didn't know this either. a large the animal with the, the largest, largest set of eyes i have no idea a whale an, ost an ostrich and an their ostrich. eyes are as big and their eyes are bigger than their brains i'm not sure i don't get the correlation i thought i'd throw it out. all right so what's on the barbecue at your house for the weekend what's on my barbecue yeah what are you putting out there on the weekend when you're cooking uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't cook. My wife does. Uh, I don't even cook on the barbecue. She does. Uh, I'm always working. Oh, we have a farm at home. So I, I work and I eat. Oh, you never stop. I do. No, I, I never, it. I never stop. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always uh, probably organic burgers. We eat nothing but organic food. So yeah, good. I'll tell you what, organic beef, tough to pass up. What's a bucket list item for you? Oh, I just talked to my wife about this the other day. I I've never, I've been in one, but I've never really ridden in a hot air balloon. I want to go on a hot air balloon. That'd be uh, cool. Yeah. Next to that on my bucket list was to uh, uh, walk on the Great Wall of China. I've been able to do that. So that was my number one bucket list in the world. Anything that you can see that's man-made from outer space, I want to see it up close and personal. And, I think that's cool. Yeah. The Great Wall of China is anybody that gets an opportunity to go there and experience that. Uh, I hope they I, can do that. That I was my, not, that was that was my big oh and uh, trout fishing in New Zealand. Yeah, that was on my bucket list too, and I got to do that. So that wouldn't be bad. New Zealand period. Just you just say New Zealand. That's good enough bucket list. Yeah. So tell me somebody dead or alive you'd like to have over for dinner. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Good. Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, da Vinci and and uh, Jefferson are my two. Uh, people that, that I most would, would like to meet. I think getting both of them together would be kind of cool. Get a little bottle of wine going around the table and just yeah, kind of like. Both, both Renaissance people that have yeah. a broad uh, expanse of interests, not necessarily knowledge, but interests. And that, re that Renaissance person uh, appeals to me. I have a broad spectrum of interests and uh, I'm, I always say I'm, a, I'm, I'm good at many, many things. I'm not great at anything. So yeah, that's, that's what happens. When we, we realize that as we get older, I do believe, yeah. <laughs> I do believe, you know, you've been so gracious with your time today and you've been so open and candid um, with what's going on at Rodale, what's going on in the world of organics, the why, the what for, uh, the rationale behind it. And I appreciate that very much. You know, you, people come on these broadcasts, they get to be a little intimidating and we don't like that part of it for folks, but we also recognize the value it is to lift up conversations is to make, you know, people more aware of what's happening. And I think you've done a beautiful job with that. So I just have one final question of your time, if you don't mind really quick, sure. you know, so much of your life has been obviously spent farming and learning and working towards, you know, creating positive outcomes. So my question to you is what advice would you give a young person today that's looking at that next generation, becoming that next generation of farmer, but has that fear in their heart or in their mind about the challenges that lie ahead of them. What would you say to that young person? Yeah, whether they're a farmer or not, I think young people just need to get involved. This is a great community, uh, a great industry to get involved with. And so whatever your skills are, whether it's farming, 
uh, like I said, communication, education, journalism, uh, hosting uh, webinars or blogs, you know, wherever you think you can plug your skills in, get involved. We need young people. We need the energy that youth brings to this conversation. Uh, I'm really pleased when I go to uh, pre-COVID when I was going to more meetings and you would see young people picking up the mantle and taking it to the next level. That's what we need to see. For farmers, it's a challenge. We know that it's a very capital intensive system, hard to get access to the money. Um, Get started, you know, what did Earl Butt say? Get bigger, get out. We say get small and get in. You know, Love start it. start small and get in. Don't worry about it. You know, don't don't be intimidated by other people that say you're 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 cute or you're small. It starts somewhere uh, and, and help us grow the industry and the community. Uh, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Jeff, thank you very, very much for your time and your energy today and hanging out with us. Um, I really do appreciate you and I appreciate everybody at Rodell, the work you're doing and the conversations that you're having out there. I think they're just so important. So thank you from the bottom of my heart, taking time to hang out with us. I know audience is going to love this conversation and I just really appreciate it very, very much. Well, thank you, Todd. And, and obviously we couldn't do it without folks like you out there carrying the message out to people. So yeah, I appreciate you and the work you're doing uh, and other folks like you that are, are hosting these kinds of uh, platforms for a discussion and a conversation is how we're going to move the ball forward. Thanks for coming back. Everybody wants. Yeah. Open Anytime. invitation to come back. Come back. Let's go. We'll do one. If you come out to California, I'll come meet you. We'll walk yeah, the that, fields together. That'd be fantastic. I look forward I'd to love it. it. Everybody, thanks very much for hanging out with us. We appreciate you. Remember, go inspire somebody today. It's really important. It's not that hard to do, but we need to keep doing it in this planet. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Hey, everybody. What a great chat with uh, Jeff. Cool cat. A lot going on at the Rodale Institute. Check them out. Uh, check out their website. Go look at their programs, especially the veteran program. And of course, what they're doing for young kids is really important. And the conversation around regenerative agriculture is quite interesting. Get into it. Study it a little bit. Learn. Empower yourself. It's really important. Uh, anyways, thanks for hanging out. Don't forget to check us out on all the social media channels, TLC underscore Todd Versations. That's where the cool kids are. And as you're well aware, that's where we are. And uh, look for our new broadcast called Todd Pits. That's out as well. Uh, some fast approach to uh, subjects and breaking news, et cetera. So we're excited about Todd Bits and looking forward to that. That's going to live on our podcast channels, our YouTube page, all that fun stuff as well. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out with us. We do appreciate it. And a big thanks again to Jeff and the team at Rodale for taking the time to hang out with us and inform everybody about what they're up to. Uh, we'll chat with you soon. Remember, go inspire somebody. It's super important. Take care, everybody. <laughs>